You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, and James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we considered those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as we are praying this morning, we have uh, all church prayer at eight o'clock. It's the real faithful uh, presence of people that come and pray that early. I know that it's almost like a God-forsaken time on a Sunday morning. But as we are praying, it was intended to be a joke, and as we were praying, uh, someone prayed, um, Lord, we ask that heaven and earth would collide. We ask that heaven and earth would collide. And I think that that's a great place to begin because I had chosen a quote by John Calvin that said this, we must make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. We must make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. This is the work of the church where God's people display the reality of heaven for people here on earth. But then the question is, how do we do that? Because if you ask me, that seems like a pretty tall order. What are you doing? I don't know, just making the reality of heaven real. How do we do that? Well, Galatians 5 tells us that we do this, listen, here it is, as we walk by the Spirit and we therefore produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is the outworking of the life of God within us, where the hidden, internal, transforming work of the Holy Spirit becomes evident and tangible and real to the people that we come in contact with every single day. And today, as we're walking through each fruit of the Holy Spirit, we are looking at the fruit of patience, the fruit of Patience, just real quick, let me ask you this question. How are you doing with patience? How's patience going in your life? So here's how I want to begin. I want to begin by uh, reading an obscure poet, or at least a poet I never heard of before, from a poem I never heard of before. And in it, she essentially personifies patience like this. I love, I'm sorry, I long to cry her soft whisper. Let me start that over. I long to cry, her soft wisp, voice whispers, nay. I seek to fly, but she restrains my feet. In wisdom stern, yet in compassion sweet, she guides my helpless wanderings day by day. 
Oh, my beloved, life's golden visions fade. And one by one, life's phantom joys depart. They leave a sudden darkness in the heart. And patience fills their empty place instead. Patience. Patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that grabs a hold of our legs when we're ready to run from our difficulty, which is an all-too-common trait for us. When we're irritated, when we're feeling stir-crazy, when we're overwhelmed, when we're feeling hopeless because of people or because of the circumstances of our lives, and we feel that impulse to run away and to flee from our challenges or to shortcut the process that we're in, patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that once again anchors our feet to the ground and strengthens our troubled hearts and says to us sternly, hold fast, persevere, stay put. Now, we're living in a time where everyone's trying to start something. But there's a lot fewer people sticking it out. Think about marriages. Think about children. Think about churches. Think about movements. I meet a lot of starters. But where are the stayers? Where are the stayers? We celebrate starting, but rarely do we celebrate staying. Think about this with me. Isn't it odd that a lot of people spend the upwards of tens of thousands of dollars for weddings, and then when it comes years later to anniversaries, we skimp, right? We spend all this money and all this celebration to begin a wedding, and then it comes to our five or 10 or 15 or 20 year anniversary, and we're at dinner and we're looking at the menu, and we're like, uh, should we split an appetizer? Looking kind of expensive here. I was thinking about getting a drink, but why don't we split a soda? You get a water, we'll split the soda, that sort of thing. We splurge with the starting. We skimp with the staying. So you see that subliminal message that we're sending. We honor starting. We disregard sticking it out. But the Bible does the very opposite. The scriptures constantly remind us that the reward comes not to those who begin the journey, but to those who patiently endure to the end. Or as James puts it, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. The blessing is found in the remaining. In the remaining. This is what the Bible means when it describes a life marked by patience. Being a patient person. This isn't just someone who keeps their cool. This is someone who keeps the course. This isn't just those who don't blow up. This is describing those who don't give up. In fact, the word patience is translated long-suffering and endurance. It means pressing forward under the weight of adversity. It essentially means suffering well. James teaches us here in this passage in, in James chapter 5 how we as God's people can cultivate that patience. Now, the work of producing fruit is the spirits. The work of the believer is cultivating cultivating. And so James tells us ways that we can cultivate. Let's look first at this first point. How do we cultivate patience in our lives? We need to think about life differently. Now, I know that may sound 
too basic for a sermon, that may seem too practical when we're talking about something like patience, but let me remind you, James is a very practical book. James is going to refuse to allow to suspend our faith in the abstract and theoretical. He wants us to see just how practical the Christian faith is. And so we begin with this. we got to think about life differently. And in order to, to, to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the opposite of patience for just a moment. Because if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we know a lot more about impatience than we do about patience. Impatience. What is impatience? Impatience is the inability to rationally discern between that which claims to be urgent and that which is truly important. Let me repeat that. Impatience is the inability to rationally discern between what is claiming to be urgent in our life and that which is actually important. So in a New York Times article recently on this subject, a number of researchers sought to study the science behind impatience, to study the body, what was going on when we all, at one point or another, grow impatient. And what they did was they really centered their study and research around an almond-shaped gray matter portion of your brain called the amygdala. And what they in this article described this part of the brain as, uh, they described it as the unsophisticated part of the brain that is incapable of telling the difference between true danger, like a growling tiger, and something far less life-threatening, like something irritating in our lives. And so what they described is that we live in a civilization where for the most part, not, not a lot of people live in the wild. We live in sheltered homes and fairly sheltered environments. But, they say, we have not adapted to our new modern environment. And they say that impatience is the result. Impatience is the leftover of not having adapted to this environment. And their point really is this. Now, there was a lot of things in this article that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, and it lacked gospel uh, hope, but the point that I found interesting was this. They said impatience is essentially a misinterpretation of life. When we are impatient, we are misinterpreting life. So let me give you a few, a few illustrations. When we're sitting trying to get on Netflix and it begins to pinwheel and it catches at 25% and it won't go beyond. That, that moment where you're, you get irritated and you, your blood starts to boil and it just pinwheels and it just stays there and it won't move and you refresh it and then it pinwheels and then it catches at 99% but it won't go that all the way when it's buffering. That, that irritation, gosh, what do I pay this money for? What do I pay this money for this Wi-Fi and this Netflix? It's that irritability that grows into impatience. Let me give you another illustration. How about when we lose our minds when someone is driving slow in the fast lane? Am I the only one that gets irritated as a driver? Okay, thank you. So just recently, on a day when I was studying for this message on patience, I'm driving, I have my youngest son, Levi, in the back, and we're, getting, we're on March Lane, about to get on I-5, and there's just a single lane, and someone pulls really quickly in front of me to, to get into that lane late, causes me to like, you know, slam on my brakes, and I just, like, impulse just lay on my horn. And I'm not talking like, honk, I'm talking like, I just start shaking as I'm doing it. Now, up until that point, that was not a life-threatening moment. Now, at that point, I probably put myself in a life-threatening situation laying on the horn that long because I don't know who this person is. 
But, okay, so we're driving about 20, 30 seconds later of absolute silence because I'm totally ashamed of my actions. My son says, wait, Dad, was that you honking your horn? Like, he couldn't imagine that I was capable of such indignation over something as trivial as that. Or one last example, when we raise our voices at our children in order for them to be quiet. Be quiet! (laughs) See the irony there? My house is supposed to be a quiet place. What are you doing? When our blood boils over non-life-threatening situations, why do we do this? Because I'm assuming I'm not alone in some of these responses, right? Okay, I am? No. So I assume I'm not alone in these sort of irrational responses, so why do we do it? I do it. I can only speak for myself, I believe, because I'm not seeing life correctly. Now, there are things to be angry about. We live in a world where there's a lot of things right now, specifically, where we should be angry. The Bible doesn't just give like a blanket statement, don't be angry. It says, be angry and do not sin. Or be slow to anger because this is the character of God. He does get angry, but he is slow to anger. What does it mean to be slow to anger? It means to be wise and discerning and knowing what to get angry about and how to respond. One of the works of the flesh that Paul mentions in Galatians 5 is fits of anger. That's not God-like character. You may be angry about the right thing, but you're not responding in the right way. God is slow to anger, and we're called to be slow to anger as well. And this is only possible when our perspective of life has changed, when we're looking at life differently. And here's how we do it, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. See, what impatience ultimately is, is failing to see life in light of the reality of the Lord and his coming. If we're all alone, if this is just us out here on earth by ourselves, and it's up to us, humanity, to somehow fix this thing and to fix humanity, then we have every right to lose our minds right now. We have every right to be angry at one another and be impatient with one another. But if the Lord is who he says he is and the Lord will fulfill what he has promised to fulfill, then we have no other option than to look at life patiently. We have no other option than to look at life differently. The second way that James tells us that we can cultivate patience in our lives is take the long view. Take the long view. The way that we cultivate it is taking the long view like the farmer. And I'm telling you, James gets really practical here. So look at me again in verse 7 and 8. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Now, there's a four-letter word that no one likes to hear, wait. No one likes to hear waiting. In fact, if you think about it, a bulk of our technology and the advancements of technology over the last few years are really just ways to eliminate 
waiting. We hate waiting. And yet, the Bible tells us that the posture of the Christian life is one of waiting. This is not something that we resist. This is something that we embrace. Isaiah says, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It's those who wait that are strengthened. We feel like all of our energy is being drained, zapped out of us the moment we're asked to wait. No, God says, no, this is where strength is reinforced when you wait. But what does it mean to wait? Well, Oswald Chambers describes it like this. The meaning of waiting in both the Old and New Testament is standing under, actively enduring. It's not standing with folded arms and doing nothing. It's not saying, in God's good time, it will come to pass. By that, we often mean, in my abominably lazy time, I'll let God work. No, waiting means standing under in active strength and enduring till the answer comes. Standing under and enduring until the answer comes. And this is why the, the farmer illustration is such a relevant illustration. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that works harder than a farmer. No farmer sits around waiting and doing nothing as he waits or she waits for the crops. They're active, they're engaged, they're diligent. If something like a water main breaks in the middle of the night, they're not like, oh, I'll be on the clock tomorrow, I'll work on it tomorrow. No, they're out in the dark, out in the cold, fixing the problem. They're constantly, actively waiting, and yet they're patient. Because they understand that there is no way that they can rush the harvest. They may be able to slightly manipulate the outcomes through advancements of technology and these sort of things, but any farmer knows you cannot rush this process. And at the end of the day, they have to end the day with the hope that that seed is inevitably going to grow, that no matter how much it seems like nothing is happening, that God is sovereignly bringing about life through rain and uh, sun and ultimately time. Time. The farmer knows that the harvest is worth the wait. And so imagine, I want, to, I want us to imagine something together. Imagine how different our efforts would look if everything that we did was marked and permeated with patience. Think about the things that you're involved in. Think about the efforts that you are a part of. Think about your vision and mission for life. What if that was marked by patience? But here's the challenge. Our generations, particularly my generation that was shaped by this idea of instant gratification, we have the resources, we have the technology, we have the knowledge, we have the training, we have the creativity to do some pretty extraordinary things in our time. And yet I would say that we are in danger of squandering that opportunity. We are in danger of being the generation that was known for having so much and accomplishing so little. And here's why, because we lack patience. We lack patience. We lack the key ingredients to seeing transformation, staying power, staying power. Again, like I said, there's a lot of starters. Where are the stayers? Where are the stayers? 
Andy Crouch, he said this, the bigger the change we hope for, the longer we must be willing to invest, work for, and wait for it. The bigger the outcome, the bigger the change that you want to see in your life, in your community, in your church, in the world, the longer you have to be willing to wait. It's those who stay in a community that shape a community. It's those who stay in a church that are the ones that help shape a church. It's those who stick it out that reap the harvest, that reap the harvest. You guys still with me this morning? Hey, we, hey, kids, babies, we are so grateful that you are in here and you are teaching us grown-ups what this is actually talking about, patience here. Yeah, so this is a great opportunity for God to grow us together and we are grateful for everyone here this morning. All the kids, you guys are doing great, okay? Galatians 6 says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if what? I need you guys, if what? Thank you for all your enthusiasm. If we don't give up. If we don't give up. Church historian named uh, Alan Kreider sought to understand what he called the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. As a historian, what he notes is that the growth of the Christian church shouldn't have happened. It just practically didn't make any sense. Think about this. A leader dies, rises on the third day, but then goes away and trusts 12 incompetent, unfaithful, unqualified men to take the message and spread it, and it overcomes the entire Roman world, and here we are 2,000 years later still celebrating this Jesus, a part of this faith. That shouldn't have worked. And on top of that, the message that we embrace is really calling men and women to sacrifice, self-denial, loss, and even death. There's hope in this message, but like the Christian faith calls people to take up a cross and die to themselves. This shouldn't have, this shouldn't have worked. But what he says is the most important ingredient that the church had and displayed and as a historian, he says, this was the key ingredient for the growth of the Christian church. And he said it was patience. Patience. He called it the patient ferment of the early church. And we know it's a patience that it comes about through the Holy Spirit. But it's patience, nonetheless. Take the long view. Third, turn away from grumbling. Turn away from grumbling. Look at me in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, when you think about God judging the actions of people, what are those actions that you tend to think about? In the church, we tend to emphasize things like certain behaviors like sexual sin, addiction, vices, abuse, violence, and for good reason, these are, these are the sort of things that we will be judged for. But let me ask you this, what about grumbling? 
When was the last time you confronted the sin of grumbling or even thought of it that way? I know a lot of us are probably thinking, well, there's, there seems to be a lot more serious things to be concerned about in our lives than in the world. Why, why are you paying so much attention to grumbling? What's the big deal about complaining? Because it's not hurting anyone. When the Bible describes grumbling, it describes it as a subtle destructive force that does two key things. It undermines trust in God, and then it reinforces the patience that we're called to avoid, impatience that we're called to avoid. So it undermines trust, and then as we seek to cultivate patience, it actually does the very opposite. It begins to cultivate angst, irritation, impatience, not only in our own lives, but in the hearer's lives as well. Let me illustrate this. In Numbers 16 in the Old Testament, after God deals with this rebellious faction of the children of Israel, the people, the congregation, to begin to grumble and complain against Moses and Aaron. They essentially turn on one another, which is always the temptation of God's people in times of pressure. Let me remind you of like month two of quarantine. What was your house looking like? It was probably a lot of this. And so the fierce presence of God appears to Moses and Aaron, and he says, you need to stand clear of the congregation because I'm about to consume them. Grumbling is not a trivial thing. It is not something that God messes around with. And we read this in Numbers 16, and Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on it, uh, on the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Those who died in the plague were 14,700. You know what's worse as I'm looking at a congregation with masks on right now? You know what's worse than a deadly disease sweeping through a congregation? Biblically speaking, what's worse is the cancer of complaint. In God's eyes, what's actually more detrimental and devastating is the cancer of complaint, one that spreads through a community faster than disease, causing God's people to lose heart and to turn away from him. And this plague was a real-life, painful illustration of what grumbling can do in a people if it's not stopped. And so God was so dedicated to the purity of his people coming into the promised land that he was willing to take drastic measures to purge his, this from among his, his people. And while through the actions of Moses and Aaron, a large portion of the people were spared of this plague, the congregation was not spared from this judgment that James talks about. They weren't spurred. In fact, in the book of Numbers, elsewhere in the book of Numbers, we're told that the key reason that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 painstaking years was so that an entire generation of grumblers would die off in order for a new, hope-filled, believing generation to be able to enter in and to occupy the promised land. And so here's... What I'm thinking as I'm reading that, what I'm thinking is that we, as God's people today, this generation, our generations, 
we need to refuse to allow that to be our story as well. We, we need to refuse to be the people that essentially are standing on the outside of what God is doing because we grumble and complain our way out of the promises. We live in a moment where it's really easy. I'm not saying this is easy. We live in a moment that has made it very easy to be impatient and to, to grumble and to complain. In fact, through avenues like social media, we now have a public platform for it to project our complaints, to project our grumbling, and then on top of this, we're rewarded with likes and followers and people recirculating our complaints in a way that just feels affirming to continue to do it. And so we, like every generation before us, face a fork in the road. This is the fork that we face right now. Are we going to be marked by grumbling and complaining, or are we going to be those who maintain our prophetic witness? These are our options, to be marked by grumbling and complaining or to be marked by having a prophetic witness. So what's the difference? Well, grumbling is the preaching of my timing, the preaching of my opinions, the preaching of my complaints, my agenda, my vision for life. Prophetic witness, on the other hand, is the preaching of God's timing, God's wisdom, God's justice, God's will, God's vision for life. One brings judgment and leads to decline. The other brings blessing and favor and leads to life. What will we be known for? My hope and my prayer is that we would maintain our prophetic witness, that we would replace the words of grumbling and complaining with the timeless, beautiful, good news of God's word. Amen? Let's look finally, find a way to cultivate the fruit of patience, according to James, is that we need to trust the character of God. Trust the character of God. Now, what both of our passages that we're looking at this morning seem to highlight is that there is an ongoing struggle in your heart, especially in moments of waiting. And the struggle that Paul describes in Galatians 5 is between the flesh and the spirit. You know that painful moment where you have to wait for something that you think you deserve right now? That thing you thought was coming now and you have to wait for it and you feel like everything within you is dying? There's some practical reasons for that, I'm sure. But what the scriptures lay out is the spiritual reasons. The spiritual reason you feel like death is occurring is that there's an actual war and struggle occurring inside of you. The flesh is lashing out and it is seeking to take matters into our own hands, to stop trusting the Lord, to force our own agenda, to take shortcuts, to convince us that we can't trust God, to convince us that we can't trust his timing. And so we the flesh is trying to convince us to go our own way. That's one pull, but... The Spirit of God, however, is causing us to be patient. He's at work strengthening us to stay the course, to keep trusting God, even when we don't have the tangible, visible reasons to do so. He's at work within us, establishing our hearts and really causing us to send down the roots of our trust into the soil of God's faithfulness, into the soil of his promises, into the soil of his eminent return. This is what I think James is getting at here. The fruit of patience is only as good as its roots of trust. Your patience will only be as strong as your trust. Look at me in verse 8. 
also be patient, establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What that word means is fix your hearts, rivet your hearts, anchor your hearts, plant your hearts into who the Lord was, who the Lord is, and who the Lord will always be. See, without abiding trust in God's character, we will forever be impatient. St. Augustine once said that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless. They're impatient until they find their home and their rest in you. We were made for loving communion with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We were not made for impatience. We were not created for anxiety. We were not created for angst. Sin has brought those things. We were created for patience. And where we find and discover that patience once again is within reconciled relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And apart from that, all we have is restlessness. Apart from that, all we have is impatience. And so James encourages us. What we need to do is we need to take a long, hard look at the good and faithful track record of God, his mercy, his compassion, his provision, his salvation. And the way that we do this, he, he tells us to consider the life of Job. Now, when I first read this, I, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Because when I look at the book of Job, I see a lot of things, but I don't necessarily, at least at first, see a picture of patience. But as you begin to, to compare the life of Job and the Christian life, what you see is that both are really marked by sadness and expectation. And it really serves, his life serves as the perfect illustration of a life of struggle, loss, misunderstanding God, bad advice, a lot of grumbling, and yet perseverance to keep trusting even when that trust gets real ugly even when it's just barely there. And at the very end of Job, despite all of his losses, despite all of his pain, it concludes with God restoring his life above and beyond, more than he could ever imagine. So what's that mean for us? It means that we can patiently endure today because we know what is to come. Job had it a little bit harder than us. Job had to write it out to the very end. He didn't know how his story was going to conclude. He had to, he had to trust without having the last chapter. But we, on the other hand, already know how our story will end. You know how the story ends. We know that all that Jesus accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection, his work of redemption, his work of, of reconciliation, his work of renewal, it will be fully experienced when Jesus returns. And when he comes again, all the things that cause us to want to give up and give in will be done away with. Jesus will inevitably restore our lives. He will restore our relationships. He will restore our broken world completely. The coming of the Lord will change the entire landscapes of our lives forever. We know how the story ends. And it's this confidence that brings patience today. It's confidence in tomorrow that brings patience today. And here's how. It's because we take all of our God-sized 
expectation, all of our God-sized dreams, all of our God-sized longings that we so often place on people and things and opportunities and political parties and nations and churches and fill in the blank and we place them back on God once more. And as we place all those God-sized longings and dreams on the only one that can carry it, we're freed to be patient with people again. Because I realize the person that I've had such high expectations for, God-like expectations for, is just another person, just like me. Just another person that's in the process. Just another person that has been a recipient of God's patience. Here's the good news. And I'll conclude with this. Even when we fail to reflect God's patience, when we sin and we grow impatient and we misrepresent God, the good news is that he will remain patient to us. And this is, I believe, the point. The Apostle Paul would say this, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Our lives will highlight God's patience one way or another, for better or for worse. And God in his wisdom causes our shining moments where we are, yes, I was so patient, and all of our super embarrassing horn-honking moments, he takes all of it and he highlights his patience to the world and he reveals to the world that these are my people and I'm sticking with them to the very end and I will see them through, through our best and through our worst. The invisible kingdom is made visible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time.